Good morning, everybody. I'm Judy, and I'm a compulsive overeater. All right, well done. Thank you for making me feel welcome. I don't know about you, but those of us on the committee have had an incredible experience working with this hotel. They have bent over backwards. Now I want you to direct your applause to Ben and Logan at the back who have done it all. They are absolutely, they're my BFFs right now. Okay, I have all these announcements to make. That one-of-a-kind quilt that we were raffled at the closing, the tickets for that will be sold up till 10 o'clock. So you still have a chance to... Um, there's a table right at the... As you go out to the left of the atrium where the quilt has been all, all weekend, go get some more tickets. Why am I saying that? I want to win. Okay. Now... Oh, hush up there, you... Now, I want to talk about the 50-50 raffle. Does anybody recall last night's number? A thousand and change. Oh, it's not there anymore. So we're going to do a count up by hundreds. Do you think we made 1,100? More? Okay. Did we make 1,200? Did we make 1300? No. Did we make 1400? No. Did we make 1500? No. Yeah, 1572 dollars. No. But it is a program of more. <laughs> We're going to go for Do you think we can make 2000? Well, okay. You are going to bring your checkbooks. You are going to bring your cash because when breakfast is over, up through the closing, we have got people selling tickets that are going to bend that arm just a quarter inch, and who knows how high we can go for the closing. So, great. Now, just think about this. You know all that fabulous stuff in the silent auction? There's just a few unclaimed things. Oh, you know the earrings that custom made by somebody very special? Those were going for $10. It's half off now, okay? I'm just going to read a few names. Why? Okay. I'm just going to read a few names of things that need to be picked up. So, Annie McDonald, near dear to my heart. Molly Hermes, I think it is. Um, Sarah Lucy Ramos needs to pick up hers. Um, Brett Mueller. Jennifer Neal and Leslie Newston. And where do they pick them up? They can go over to the silent auction room across to your right. And, at, and a little bit before 10, they're going to close that down and they'll bring them and they will have them at the back of the closing. So you will be able to claim your items. Did you enjoy breakfast? Okay. Oh, one more thing. We said it was a program of more. Um, on the silent auction, we lost two bid sheets. So the two items that we can't find the bid sheets on are the opal necklace and earring set, which is 14 karat gold, 
and the seahorse. I know somebody said that she had that. We can't find the thing. So if you bid on either of those two or know somebody who did, would you go into the silent auction after this and we'll work something out? Thanks. It is my honor to introduce a program person near and dear to my heart and my recovery. Our speaker for this morning is Rosalie from Sacramento. Welcome her. Can everybody hear me? Yes. yes. My name is Rosalie. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Rebecca told me last night, she said, there are three speeches you give. One, coming over here, the speech you actually give, and then the one going home. And the perfect one is the one going home. <laughs> and if you don't like what I say today, well, at least she said you got a good breakfast. So... <laughs> Um, thank you for letting me share my story. In the interest of time, I'm going to use my notes. And can I ask where my timer is? You're the timer. Okay, thank you. Um, as I said, my name is Rosalie. I'm a compulsive overeater. And I'm going to stick to the suggested formula of what we do here, which is um, we, tell, we share what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. <laughs> thank you. Um, so a few statistics. My OA birthday is September 15th, 1977. And thank you. I got into recovery um, right away, and I got abstinent right away. So when I came in, I was definitely ready. And so today I have over 34 years of recovery and abstinence in this program, for which I am very grateful. When we did the countdown on Friday night, um, I was so hoping I was not the last one standing. And I have to tell you, there's a reason, because I wanted somebody ahead of me to be making footsteps that I can walk into, because I still have a lot of recovery left to go. So it was a great um, honor to see somebody else ahead of me, because when I came in, there were people that had been in the program longer than I have, and I was doing what they suggested to do. My high weight was around 165. I'm not really sure what it was because I stopped weighing around 142. And I know that I gained a whole lot more before I got to this program. Um, and when I came in, the only clothes I could wear were painter's pants and Army Navy surplus clothing. But it was the only thing that fit me. And I refused to go anywhere and buy good clothing because I knew I was going to outgrow it. When I got to the doors of OA, I... What really forced me here was I had all the diets on my pantry door. They were all pinned there, and I had tried them all, and they had all failed. And I was reaching for the can of tuna. That's how bad my uh, disease had gotten. I had gotten way past the chips and the sugar and the fat. I was reaching for the tuna, and I was going to use the tuna to fill that black hole. Um, today, I said my prayers, I did my gratitude list this morning, and I got up and weighed myself, and today I weigh um, 120.6. 0.6 is very important. <laughs> 
So let me tell you a little bit about my history. Um, I consider myself a garden variety compulsive overeater. There's nothing special about my story. Um, I use the tool of compulsive overeating to manage my feelings. For me, um, the overeating was the bridge to fill that black hole, and it was the bridge between my gut, the inside, and the outside. Because externally, I looked like I had it together. I had a good job. I had a career that was working for me. Um, I had some friends, and I was... I thought I was happy, but I really wasn't because I was really using that tool to fill something that I could not fill any other way. Um, Compulsive overeating for me connected my body to my soul. And really, it was the bridge between my old way of life and the new way of life that I found in OA. Um, I'm really grateful that I'm a compulsive overeater today because that eating that I did helped me survive until I found a new way here in OA. I come from a large family. I have 10 brothers and sisters. Grew up in the Midwest, and I was the third oldest. And there was a gap between me and the, and the next person up. And so I became overly responsible at a very young age. I was usually the first one up in the morning. I made breakfast for my brothers and sisters. Um, I made sure that they got dressed and out the door to school and often helped them with, my ho- with their homework. And so when I look back on my history of compulsive overeating, I can already see the seeds of being, you know, that over-responsibility and the illusion that I had some control over other people. At this point, it was my brothers and sisters. But already the pattern was starting to form. Um, My family was very poor financially. For a long time, we were on welfare. And there was just enough food. Um, I don't remember going hungry, but I know that um, for a time there was very little in the cupboard. Um, desserts were reserved, if we had them, they were reserved for special occasions, usually birthday cake, and it was not fancy, but it was a cake. And there was no junk food in our house. We had a large garden, so we often, you know, all the kids went out to work in the garden, and um, really when I look back on that, I see that during that time I was really living a healthy lifestyle. In today's terms, that was a healthy lifestyle, and, and, and I felt that way when I was growing up. I didn't really feel deprived. It was that only happened later, but the I lived with a lot of anxiety and fear, and you know my day-to-day survival seemed always like it was on the edge, and financial security was always an issue, and during that time, you know, food became the only coping mechanism I had. The funny part about this is that the lack of money did not stop me from creatively finding ways to get that food. I stole food. I hid food. I Um, you know, grabbed other people's food from the lunch tray. I cleaned out the cupboards of um, people that I babysat for, and then they'd come and ask me about it, and, of course, I'd lie about it. Um, And the interesting thing for me is (laughs) my family used to have this thing. We didn't have junk food in our house, but we did have sugar and butter and water. And we used to call it, we'd make this thing called goop, but we called goop, which is basically sugar and water with butter cooked on the stove. And I can remember as a child making that food and then taking it up to my room. This usually happened when my parents were gone, so the hiding of the food was already happening. And I take it up the pan up to my room, eat it all myself, and then hide the, the food under or the pan under the bed. So again, you know, my pattern of compulsive overeating was really there from a very early age. 
Um, I moved away from home to go to college, and oh my gosh, I was on scholarship the entire time, and I was financially poor. I barely had money for soap, but the women's college that I went to was very rich. There were a lot of uh, women there from Chicago, the Chicago area. They were much more sophisticated than I was. They, they, knew, they knew what they were doing, and they often smoked at the time. And their behaviors and mannerisms, many of them didn't work. I was, I was working all the time and going to class. Um, so this, this kind of separation that I felt, while I, especially while I was at college, really there was no way to reconcile that in my head. I was totally out of my element, and I had few coping skills um, to deal with that kind of dissonance that I felt. It was like, you know, it, there was them and then there was me, and I didn't fit. Um, and I was also emotionally very immature. I was not equipped to handle, you know, the kinds of interactions that I had at college in really adult ways to try and get my needs met. I remember talking to a couple counselors about it, but really, you know, there was no time for therapy when I was just trying to survive and get out, get out of school. I really had limited coping skills. So what I did is I coped by doing what I knew best, studying hard, getting good grades, and eating. And that was my coping skill. Um, where college is you know, often a time where you explore who you are and you try and find yourself, that wasn't me. I, I, was, I really was a loner. I stayed in on Friday nights. I had very little social life. And I had a difficult time interacting with people. So my interaction was with food, and I dismissed all those other things as unimportant. I considered them irrelevant to my life. You know, the most important thing was to get good grades. And really, that really isn't true. You know, if I'm finding myself and growing up into a mature woman, I need to learn those coping skills. I need to have those, so- we need to learn how to have those social interactions. And I did not learn that in college. And my disease really exploded in college. Um, the diets that I tried, you know, everybody on, in college was on a diet, and they did not work for me. I, I gave up really early in my eating career. And the worst thing was that previously, the, you know, the off-limit foods that I did not grow up with, all the binge foods that were out there, all the, the, um, the cheap foods, they were now a, really a very abundant in college. And so I was always faced with this dilemma of uh, having to choose whether I was going to go for the junk food or actually eat healthy. And I could not stop eating. I mean, I was going to try everything that was out there. And I have a friend of mine that says this time of my life is like um, the toothpaste was out of the tube. And there was no pushing it back. I, at that point, I was really a full-blown compulsive overeater. And I, you know, could not control it. I long ago lost control. I moved out to California away from my family, you know. They were like, I was leaving that whole situation back there. I, today I look at that as a, it really was a geographic. I went to grad school and got my medical license. And during that time I was very fat. And my peers all had an opinion about my fatness. They all, you know, told me I should lose weight, what a pretty face I had, if only I would lose that weight. And of course... You know, that went over my head. I wasn't going to pay any attention to them. But it really hurt. I mean, there was so much pain in hearing those comments. They just, they cut to the quick. And the first, gosh, I'm, as I'm, ta- I'm thinking about this, I'm even tearing up now. And it was really a long time ago. But it was really a hurtful time for me during that time. 
Um, gosh. Anyway, the first year I was out in California, it was at the end of my first year out here, I got very ill. I almost died, lost a lot of blood, and ended up having emergency surgery. Now my family was all back in Minnesota. I was out here by myself, and so that, you know, that kind of self-sufficiency kicked in. And luckily for me, I had a good medical team working for me and, um, and a lot of support at that time from the people that I was working with, too, and they really helped me. Thank you. Um, but what happened is that this illness changed my, I think it changed my brain chemistry, and it definitely changed my metabolism because um, for the next, I don't know how many years, I could eat anything. I mean, I lost all the weight that people were telling me I was way too fat about. I lost all of it and then some. And people started telling me I should gain weight now. And, <laughs> and I could eat whatever I wanted. It was, it was just such a confusing time for me because, you know, the, all of this external, the external messages that were there were confusing to me because internally I was still a fat person. And I ate whatever I wanted in the amount I wanted. I didn't gain any weight. But eventually, uh, the weight caught up with me, and, you know, the metabolism changed again. And I gained all my lost weight plus some. And at that point, you know, I was in such emotional pain that I could barely stand myself. I really had a hard time just being with myself. And it was at this point that I found OA, a common story. Um, I had heard about OA from a friend of mine in Fresno. Anybody here from Fresno? I have a special spot in my heart for OA in Fresno because <laughs> that's where I heard that story. Um, and I didn't need it at the time. When she told me about it, you know, I was thin, and OA was just for fat people, wasn't it? I mean, I didn't really I didn't know anything about it except that she was on gray sheet. And she looked happy, and she was able to manage her food. And... You know, I thought, well, I don't need this today, you know, maybe later. And, but I filed the thought away. I mean, just hearing the words, Overeaters Anonymous, had a big impression on me. And I put that thought in the back of my head because I knew the day was going to come when I was going to gain that weight back, and I knew I was going to need whatever those two words meant. And here's where my story becomes special. This is what's special about my story. Um, and it's the same story that I hear from other recovering people in OA. Um, I found a new tool, <laughs> and one that is not on a diet. I had never heard it talked about in diets, and the tool is willingness. For me, that's probably the thing that has worked the best for me in this program. I became willing to keep coming back. I became willing to take direction. <laughs> I became willing to work the steps using the tools that I had never heard of before I got here. Um, I became willing to walk away from the food and feel my feelings. Oh, my gosh. And there were so many of them that had been stuffed down there for so long. And I became willing to walk through the pain without leaving the program. I've never left the program. And I think when I say those words keep coming back, for me, that's the secret of recovery in this program. No matter how bad it got, no matter what happened to me, I've lived through other surgeries in this program. I lived through the death of my parent. Um, I've lived through um, a suicide of a 22-year-old niece who had a six-month-old breastfeeding child. I, I mean, those things could have shaken me to my core. I could have easily used them as an excuse to go out there and eat. 
And through this program, I, didn't, I found that tool. I didn't have to go back out there. So right away, you know, I walked into my first meeting, and there were all these older women there. <laughs> it was a small meeting next to a donut shop in Sacramento. <laughs> you, like I said, you've heard this story before. Um, and they were all smiling. And I wanted what they had. I mean, I was smiling too, but my smile was really fake. <laughs> I did not want to be there, but I knew I needed to be there. At some deep level, I knew I needed to be there. And um, I got a sponsor right away. I asked somebody to be my temporary sponsor, and she said, okay, I'll be your temporary sponsor until you get a permanent one. And she became my permanent sponsor. (laughs) She has since left the program. I mean, I have not seen her here in years. I occasionally hear about her through another person that I know, but... Um, she went back out after, seven, after I had been in the program about seven or eight years in recovery, and I really don't know what happened to her, which is very sad for me. But you know what? The point is, I'm still here. I'm still here. I'm carrying the message that she gave me. And right away, she got me into service. She, you know, it was an easy way. Service is such an easy way to feel like um, I became part of something. I started putting away coffee cups, and at that point, people were still smoking in meetings, and I was cleaning up ashtrays, even though I don't, I don't smoke and never have, but I was cleaning up ashtrays. And I helped out at OA retreats. Um, you know, I was sharing at meetings, using the phone, talking to newcomers, all the things that are suggested here. And at the point where I came in, we were still using gray sheet, and I had no idea what gray sheet was. In fact, when I came in, I didn't even know what the 12 steps were. I mean, I, I really did not know anything about um, 12 steps applied to any kind of compulsive behavior. I'd heard about AA, but really didn't know what it was about. And I'm not, a, um, I'm not an AA member, um, but it has played a huge part in my recovery. So anyway, somebody suggested try three moderate meals a day, so I thought, okay, what the heck, I don't know anything else. And my way wasn't working. I was eating from the time I got up in the morning to the time I went to bed. I was grazing. Somebody, somebody I know here in this program calls it night grazing, especially when you're eating at night. That wasn't necessarily my story, but I ate the entire time I was upright. And I started with three meals a day. Basically, I called it three plates a day because it was like three plates. But it was three plates. It wasn't ten plates. It wasn't grazing in between those plates. And um, eventually I got, got down to three moderate meals a day. And my sponsor suggested prayer and meditation, like maybe I should try something like that, you know. And I'd been raised in a religious faith, um, organized religion, and I still practice that religion today. But the religion was far out there, you know, and I didn't have really a personal higher power. I didn't have a personal God. And so um, through my sponsor, I began working the steps. And I'll never forget the time when we sat down and did my fourth step. She reached across the table, and she took my hands like this, and she said, Rosalie, I was just shaking. You know, it was like I was really shaking. I was so scared to give away some of those secrets. And she said, she reached across, took my hands, and she said, Rosalie, I'm just here to be your witness. I'm not, tell you, I'm not here to tell you that you've done something bad, something good. I'm not here to judge you. She said, I'm just here to be your witness. And today, you know, that stays with me. I, um, I have learned a lot from being a sponsor and from being sponsored. Um, that kind of gentleness that my uh, first sponsor showed me really was the gift that she gave me. She gave me a lot of other stuff too, but that gift of acceptance was, was the most, probably the most important one. 
And I began, you know, working the other steps. I remember making amends to my old boss. I had eaten so much on the job. I had wasted so much time when I should have been working. And again, it was really hard amends to make. Uh, but I've learned in this program, I can, I can have that fear. I can feel it. You know, it's in my body. I'm shaking and all that. And I can just walk through it anyway and do it anyway. And uh, that, that knowing that I can get through something has helped me get through a lot of the t- hard times that I've had in this program. I started writing about my feelings, writing every day. It was, writing was a tool that I, I just had such a hard time picking that up. I did not want to write those feelings. Right now I'm working with um, somebody who's having the same problem I did, and it's funny how you attract the same people you know, into your life, that they're a mirror to you. She, too, is having a really hard time writing. She says, I'm just sitting there fighting it. I'm, I'm sitting there arguing with writing, and I won't do it. And that's how I was when I first came in. I did not want to write my feelings. And I know why I didn't want to write them, because I was going to cry. <laughs> Believe me, I was going to, just like I'm doing up here, I, I was going to cry. As those feelings started coming up, I was going to cry. And that was a hard thing for me to accept, that I could not control myself, that I was out of control. Thank you. So um, I started sponsoring other people, too, and I formalized the process. Um, I asked my sponsor, the people that I sponsor, to um, commit to working the 12 steps with me. And we read the AA and OA literature step by step, and I'm doing it with them. And we're both writing about it, and then we get together and share. And we do each step like that. So we're really an OA team. Um, I've also asked for help from outside experts to help me put together an action plan and a food plan, something that works for my body size and my health status. And I follow their advice. That's very important. And I have used both a sponsor and a spiritual advisor to help me expand um, my acceptance and understanding of a higher power in my life. Um, And let me just talk a little bit about sponsorship. When I first came in, and I found this to be true still today in a way, um, sponsors are rare birds. There are a lot of people that sponsor, but there are, in my opinion, Experience. There are a few people that know how to take somebody through all 12 steps and actually do it in a formal way. And I know this because people come to me and say, my sponsor just fired me because I haven't done the steps the way she wants me to. So, And I found, I've had a hard time finding a sponsor at times. So what I've done is I've developed my own way of sponsorship, and I have a sponsor. And I call it my sponsors are, are my sponsor network. I have two or three, four friends, actually, that um, know me intimately, and I use them as my sponsors. Um, They know what I'm about. They know what's going on in my life. I don't hide anything from them, and um, they have helped me work the steps. But it's an alternate way. If you can't find a sponsor, I suggest you find some way to work, you know, something different than what OA suggests because one-on-one sponsors are not as easy to find. So did, and through all of that, you know, I got abstinent. That's the miracle of this program. Um, I have learned to set boundaries with men. I got married in this program. After seven years in this program, I picked a compulsive overeater who is not in this program of recovery. He does use another program, and I learned I am not in charge of his recovery. And, and I've grown up and matured a lot. Um, Today, I weigh every day, and I write it down. It's part of my own truth-telling. And I track my food. I have a little 3 by 5 
piece of or um, three by five notebook that on one page is my weight and what I eat and the times of day that I eat, and on the other side is my gratitude list. And this morning I wrote that gratitude list before I got here, and you know it's helping me get through this talk. Um, I still pray. I still discuss my character defects and my emotional and spiritual issues and struggles with um, both that sponsor network and um, and my um, spiritual advisor. And just doing these simple things has kept me in recovery one day at a time. I want to comment on a couple things that have really influenced my um, my recovery in this program throughout the years I've been here. One is seeing men come into the program. Um, my sponsor suggested early on that I go to open AA meetings. Here in Sacramento, there were like four or five OA meetings when I came in. And it was, and I started going to this group three. And if anybody knows group three, you know it's these big tough men that ride motorcycles, and they're, you know, they're tough. But I started going to those open AA meetings, and I'm not kidding. I was in tears. I mean, that's really where I had my first spiritual experience: is hearing these men with such courage tell their story, and they were telling it with a lot of honesty. I came to know some of those men. They became my friends. And I'm so grateful for the men who have come into this program. They've taught me how to be friends without having a romantic relationship. They've um, also taught me how to get out of my isolation, how to be vulnerable. And uh, really, they have shown me the courage that it takes to recover in a sea of women (laughs) in Overeaters Anonymous. Um, The other thing is sponsorship. Um, like I said, I've talked a little bit about my sponsor, um, my sponsorship network is what I call it. Um, but I think there are other ways to work the program, and I'm really glad that OA has matured in, 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 in a way that allows people to have their own sense of recovery, their own program of recovery. There are a couple things that are still confusing and baffling to me. One is food sponsors. <laughs> I don't have a food sponsor. I do talk about my food with the people that I trust. But here's how it looks to me. My kitchen is like my pharmacy. Thank you. Okay, and every day I go into that pharmacy, and I pick out the medication that's going to serve me that day. And I don't go to my pharmacist, and, or I don't go to my OA friends and ask them what I should go, you know, pick out from the pharmacy, what medications I should take when I go to the hospital. So to me, it's confusing and kind of baffling to me that somebody in OA would you know, tell me how to eat. I just don't, I don't get it. I don't, you know, I'm okay with it. If you have a food sponsor and it works for you, but I just, I really don't get that. And the other thing is chips. Um, I feel like I need to take a 24-hour chip every single day. I, and that's the only, only thing I get. That's the only chip that I really deserve because I just have that 24 hours. So let me end my story with this. Um, my life has really changed, as you can imagine, in this program. But um, life has changed, but what has not changed is this. Um, OA is still available to me. I'm so grateful it's still here. And it's available to anybody who wants to recover from um, this devastating disease, which just ripped my life apart. And um, the 12 steps still work. Abstinence is a reality. You can have it, too. And it can be achieved. It's possible to achieve abstinence in this program. Newcomers still come to our door looking for hope. And that's why we're here. Uh, Relapse is still an option. I hear about it every day. Um, Recovery is still one day at a time. It doesn't get any longer than that one day at a time. And there is still no magic pill. 
I thought there would be at this time, but there is none. So I'm going to speak to the newcomers. Um, maybe you're a newcomer or somebody who feels you're still not sure about this OA stuff, you know, that you're wavering, that you still are not quite sure where you are in the program. Um, maybe you even binged Friday night before you got here. Maybe you brought some treats with you in your suitcase um, thinking you couldn't get through the weekend. I mean, we've all done stuff like this. And um, also, maybe you heard a speaker here this weekend that really triggered something in you, and the shame and humiliation that came up drove you to go somewhere and eat um, when nobody was looking. And I want to tell you, there's hope for you. Um, no matter what you did with food in the past, you can start over right now. I have started over every day and sometimes multiple times a day. You can start over every, every day. Right now, you can start over. And if I can recover, so can you. Um, I want you to look at the person sitting next to you on the left and the right. You guys ate an abstinent breakfast this morning. And look at all the people in this room who also ate an abstinent breakfast with you. And if we can do it, so can you. Um, so if you still feel that food is the solution to your problems, I'm going to save a chair for you. That's what I always tell my friends when they leave the program, is I'm going to save, my ch- I'm going to save that chair for you. And I'll wait for you until you're ready to come back in. Um, because when I'm holding that chair for you, what it means is that I have to be in the rooms of OA myself. I have to hold my own chair. And I need to be there. I need to hear that message of recovery. And that keeps me in the rooms of OA. So I'm very grateful to be here today. So grateful to be speaking to all of you. And thank you for letting me share. Another great speaker. Whoa.